Amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20. I believe this is our 34th week in the book of John. So good work, sticking with it. We're at the climax of John's Gospel. Getting ready, of course, to head towards Advent. And one of my favorite times of the year. We asked the question last week, and I want to revisit it here for a moment. The question is this, does God act in history? Does God act in history, or is it just a good story? Not only is God real, but is He active? And I just want to say it matters so much to the vision of your life because if he does act in history, if he is active in the world, then we are not just saved from something as we talked about last week, we're saved to something. Our vocation as image bearers bringing heaven to earth. As St. Paul, the Apostle in the Scriptures says that we are Christ's ambassadors. God making His appeal through us. The us there is the church. God's people. And so I submit to you this, that we collectively need a better individual vision, right? You following me? So we together need better visions for our individual lives. A vision that is collective in nature. One with us together, right? That was the vision that we've been looking at in John's Gospel. It's climactic in John 17 where Jesus prays to the Father that we would be one. When we take communion here shortly, it will be as one, right? That was what God's intentions were and are. James K.A. Smith writes this beautifully, and he says this, The heart of Christianity, this will be on the screen for you, so you can follow along. The heart of Christianity, in the incarnation, and the cross, and the resurrection, is this sense that God, the creator of the cosmos, is not allergic to time or evading history, but in fact, descends into history with us. It's powerful. Leslie Newbigin expands on this idea oh so well and really drives it down into the life of the church where he says this, and I love it. He says, His purpose, Jesus' purpose, is that in and through history, there should be brought into being that which is symbolized in the vision with which the Bible ends. The holy city into which all the glory of the nations will finally be gathered. But, and this, and of course this is the crooks of the matter, the consummation can only lie on the other side of death and resurrection. It is the calling of the church to bear through history, to its end, the secret of the Lordship of the Crucified. The death and resurrection of Jesus. So connect the dots with me and in full transparency, I want to make a fairly audacious claim, one that you've heard 
but one that I want to call you back to again is that your purpose in the world, my purpose in the world, for the rest of your life, is, can be, should be, wrapped up in, and orbit around Jesus Christ. A poor Jewish rabbi who incarnated, came to earth in the flesh, died on a Roman wooden cross alongside two criminals and then was buried in a tomb that wasn't even his, sealed by a massive stone, just to three days later rise back to life from the dead to set in motion the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known and is currently still happening. It is bringing to bear the secret of the Lordship of the Crucified. That secret, that mystery, of course, according to Colossians 1, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Crazy. I have no other adjectives for it. But wow. So I agree with Newbegin that it all hinges on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? The hinge point of history. And I'm so glad it happened. I'm so glad it happened. And I want to make a case to you that without it, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time. I want to let let the Bible make a case to you that without it, we have very little to stand on. But before we do that, I want to read the story. I want to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 20. Of course, the chapters are man-made, so this was just in progression of what we've been studying for the last 33 weeks. All of it's connected. All of it matters. It's all part of the narrative that John wanted us to have. But as we read these verses, I want to just invite you to stand back up in honor of the reading of the Word and to get your... Blood flowing again. And just to be sure that we are hearing the Lord. Here's what the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 1. So remember, He was crucified last week. It is finished. And now, we pick up the story. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John, by the way, if you haven't picked up on that. He's referring to himself. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Little small flex, John there. Gets to write in the Word for thousands of years to come. By the way, I'm faster than Peter. Don't tell me that the human element of the Scriptures isn't there. Alright, John still needed a little redemption, a little little sanctification. (laughs) I love it. Verse 5. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And I love this. He saw and he believed. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And you can imagine what their feelings were as they went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. What an awesome thing to encounter. To be so wrapped up in what is both physical and spiritual. In one scene, one moment. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Amen. You can be seated. You should just know off the bat that we are not going to unpack all this. There is so many things there, so many threads we could pull that would be worth our time. What I want to do is much like last week, just zoom back a little bit and look at the larger picture of what's happening here and allow the New Testament and even some Old Testament writers to speak into why this is so significant. And perhaps we'll come back in some other form or fashion and dig into some of this particular story and uh, some of the wonders of it, like Mary being the one announcing the good news for the first time. What an awesome thing in that culture, and even ours. But we don't have time to cover it all. So for clarity, here's what we are saying as we read that story. Jesus... A real person died in the flesh, came back to life bodily in the flesh. It happened in the flesh in ancient Jerusalem with reliable eyewitnesses. And so today we receive John's eyewitness account of the resurrection. And so my assertion to you then is that this story is significant to our lives. 
The fact that that really happened is significant to your life, to my life, to our life together. And what we want to do is simply allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures and fill us with joy and fill us with gratitude and fill us with faith and fill us with hope. This morning, we only have time to approach three reasons the resurrection matters to us today. But I would tell you, you could spend a lot of time finding reasons that it matters. But I want to just encourage you with these three today. So to begin, we, we have to understand reason number one is this. The resurrection was the central doctrine and it still is the central doctrine of our faith. It matters. Because if Jesus died on the cross for your sins but never rose again, we don't have the power that comes with, don't have the victory that comes with the resurrection. And so the resurrection is the central doctrine of our faith. As N.T. Wright explains, he says this, it'll be on the screen for you so you can follow along. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity in which the resurrection was not the central belief nor was this belief, as it were, bolted onto Christianity at the edge. It was a central driving force in forming the whole movement. Jesus predicted that he would die and then rise again, Matthew 20, John 2, and he fulfilled the prophecy on the first day of the week after his death, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. It happened in the way that he said it would happen. Jesus' resurrection also should be seen against the backdrop of the Old Testament. Right? Because when Jesus would get up to preach, or when one of the apostles would get up to preach, they were preaching from the Old Testament. And so they were preaching and giving account of these narratives in the Old Testament and resurrection. So places like Isaiah 53, of course, being one of the most obvious where the Messiah is prophesied. Or 2 Samuel 7, Job 19, Isaiah 7, 9, 25, Daniel 12, Hosea 11, Micah 5. And we could go on. It was all over. It was a central belief that the Messiah would come. That's why when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, right? They were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except he didn't deliver in the way they thought he would Deliver, and let's be honest, we often find ourselves in a place where he's not delivering how we would prefer that he deliver. And yet we are reorienting ourselves around not the American dream, but the vision that Jesus had for his people on the earth. The belief that Jesus would come and die and then rise again to rescue the world was expected from the beginning in the Genesis account after the fall. Right? We are told in that moment early in Genesis that the Messiah would come and crush the head of the serpent. We are not new to this party in believing that the resurrection would be central. In fact, we're in a long, long line of believers who have been following, faithfully following Jesus. Maybe my favorite imagery of it comes from, no surprise, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, 
where the scripture says this, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It physically matters to you how you follow Jesus. That when you got baptized, and we've seen six people get baptized in the last few weeks, and so we're seeing this picture where somebody physically is buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And I can't explain it all to you, but I do know that there is this other life that you can walk. But it gets cloudy. (laughs) It gets cloudy when evil is commingled in the world that God made, isn't it? The resurrection matters, and it's always mattered. The Messiah coming and dying, but then rising back to life, coming again, matters. Resurrection life, let me say it to you this way, resurrection life is the fruit that we need, John 10. And it leads us right into reason number two. The resurrection brings our justification. This is a a fruit of what we talked about last week. And before you jump on me and say, no, that was the cross. Let me read Romans chapter 4, verse 25, which informs our view of the cross again, right? It says this, he was delivered up for our trespasses and then he was raised for our justification. The resurrection matters. Without the resurrection, we got problems. <laughs> we didn't, we needed him to die. Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, right? But we needed him to rise. Paul's reminding us that as we walk around on the earth, that this actually matters, that as you feel your body and you participate in community and you witness to those around you that we're not just sharing some ambiguous idea or good philosophy. It really happened. And that is why you can stake your life on it. This is critical to resurrection life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, commenting on this verse, wrote these words. I love this. Here Paul turns my eyes away from my sins and directs them to Christ. For if I look at my sins, they will destroy me. Therefore, I must look under Christ, who has taken my sins upon himself, crushed the head of the serpent, and become the blessing. Now they no longer burden my conscience, but rest upon Christ. What does it look like to walk in newness of life? It looks like that. What a statement. That I can turn my eyes. You want to stop sinning? Turn your eyes away from your sin and put them on Christ and be reminded every day that Jesus crushed the head of the serpent so that you could walk with Him. Wow. And those sins no longer burden your conscience, but rest on Christ. 
powerful. Perhaps no passage more clearly marries the past, the present, and the future of our faith better than Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses from the past, still here, still participating, still cheering you on, still in the spiritual realm, which is very much a part of your life, which is very much where spiritual warfare is taking place. They're there surrounding us. That's pretty wild. Let us also, because they're there, isn't this interesting? We're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which so which clings so closely. And let us run, this is present now, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, past, and perfecter, present and future, of our faith, who, this is crazy, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is presently seated at the right hand, the throne of God. Matters. It matters for you to run the race that Jesus resurrected and is seated in his throne. Which brings us finally to number three. If the resurrection never happened, our faith is useless. Why do I say that in such a strong fashion? First Corinthians fifteen fourteen, Paul said it this way to his friends in Corinth. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, means worthless. And you are still in your sins. Very practically, Paul reminds us that there is no rescue from the condition of evil, no redemption of purpose in the world, no friendship with Jesus, no hope for humanity apart from Jesus. John said the same thing in John fifteen five. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Our problem, as I've been stating for weeks, is that we don't really believe that. We actually can accomplish some things from the world's standpoint. But at the end of the day, what are we accomplishing? Apart from Christ, we have not just a little, we have nothing. Jesus would say it this way when he was walking on earth. What does it gain a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul. This is powerful stuff. And please, read all of 1 Corinthians 15 this week. It is, it is a wonderful expose on the resurrection and why it matters for your life. Read the whole thing. But Jesus is the firstfruits of the resurrection of the righteous, and he's the firstborn of the dead. In other words, he is the first of God's righteous service, servants to be resurrected from the dead unto glory and his resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all God's people. Now listen to me. Jesus holds these titles, these fancy titles, right, of the firstborn from the dead, right, or the glory of the Father. He holds those titles not because he was the first person to ever be resurrected back to life, right? We've seen this through John's Gospel. Lazarus being the one that comes to mind the most. This has happened, so what's the difference? He's the first one to be resurrected, never to die again. Victory. 
When we sing about victory, that's what we're singing about. He's not just powerful, he's all-powerful, right? So, matters. First person to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And that is why, as Paul says, he has preeminence over all things. That's the separator, right? That's what brings the gap between, right? There's things you don't understand about God. There's things I don't understand about God. And I actually find that to be a good thing. Because if I understood everything about God, he might not be God, right? He's allowed to be bigger than what we can comprehend. And in fact, that is good news. Importantly, though, Jesus did not just rise again as a mere spirit. He rose again in the flesh. His actual body appeared to Mary outside that tomb. Because, listen, those angels were spirits who appeared to her. But when she turned around, she didn't see a spirit. She saw Jesus and she apparently grabbed him. Because he's like, don't cling to me. Some stuff going on. Right? I think about the woman who was on the ground and had been bleeding for years. And she said, all I needed to do was touch his garment. Right? Similar vibes here. There's something going on in his body. Powerful. His resurrection is an objective, verifiable truth and is not something ephemeral, but rather eternal. In other words, it's not temporary. It's eternal and it leads to our eternal life with him. And without it, according to Paul, we're in big trouble. Those of us who know Jesus, though, of course, are not in big trouble but in fact are free. We approach the communion table now in that sense. With all of that behind us. With all of that in our rear view mirror, if you will, as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, right? And it brings context around what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, My beloved, flee idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Why can he say that? Because we have a bodily resurrected Jesus. So, whatever mystery is taking place at the communion table, however we're participating in his body and blood, it's because he resurrected physically from the grave, and now we participate in it. It's amazing. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Who is the one bread, class? Jesus. Y'all can get that one, right? So, the Lord's Supper rooted all the way back to Exodus 12 and the Passover meal, which foreshadowed that the Messiah would come, is then instituted by Jesus and recorded in Matthew 26. And I want to do that together with you at the words of Jesus. So I'm going to have the band come up. They're going to play over us, set the mood. And I'm going to invite you to stand up front here on each of the speakers up here. 
is just a basket of the elements. I want to invite you to just file forward as they play. Return to your seat and then we will take it together. Fair enough? Okay. So why don't you stand with me?